This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today for my 25th climate crisis-related interview is University of Washington's Professor Christy Ebay to discuss the Lancet's recently launched series titled Heat and Health. Professor Ebay is the lead author of the first article in the series titled Hot Weather and Heat Extremes, Health Risks. Professor Ebay, welcome to the program. Thank you for your interest. Professor Ebay's bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. On background, in a recent World Health Organization report published just prior to the COP26 meeting entitled The Health Argument for Climate Action, the authors concluded the climate crisis, the single biggest health threat facing humanity, is already impacting health in a myriad ways from extreme weather events, respiratory illness, zoonosis, waterborne, vectorborne, and non-communicable diseases, malnutrition, behavioral health and psychosocial problems, and finally, heat-related illnesses and heat-related deaths. Climate crisis-related health effects are and will be particularly hard felt by the elderly and children and within minority communities. As the most recent Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change report found, heat-related deaths in people older than 65 reached a record high at 345,000 in 2019, or 81% higher than the 0005 average. Children under one year of age experienced an estimated 626 million additional person days of heat wave exposure last year compared to the 86 to 05 baseline average. The WHO report also noted climate crisis caused health shocks already push approximately 100 million people into poverty every year a number that will rise considerably as the crisis worsens. Despite these numbers, the report also notes a WHO review of countries' nationally determined contributions, NDCs, or pledges by governments to reduce their carbon emissions. Of these, the WHO found only 13% of NDCs commit to quantifying the health co-benefits of carbon policies or emission reductions. With me again to discuss the Lancet Heat and Health Series and her contribution to it is Professor Christy Ebay. Listeners will recall I interviewed her November 18th regarding the IPCC's landmark report, Global Warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade. So with that little lengthy or possibly too lengthy uh, intro, Professor, mm-hmm. uh, let me ask by starting, if you want to, of course, if you'd like to make comment on your impressions of the COP26 meeting, otherwise we'll just move on. Well, thank you. The COPs always generate a wide range of responses. I think it's important to remember that all the countries show up and to not discount the fact that countries are committed to trying to work on climate change. The agreements they reach are never enough. The negotiators understand that they're never enough there is going to continue to be more that needs to be done. And the countries have committed to that ratcheting mechanism. They've committed to ensuring that they do more to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, do more to address all of the impacts of a changing climate, 
particularly in low and middle income countries. So as always, everyone wishes there could have been stronger agreements and we need to appreciate that progress was made and it's one step in a long-term process. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. So let's go to um, this Lancet series. Uh, let me begin by asking, uh, if you read the fine print associated with your article, uh, you learn that you and two of your co-authors conceptualized this series. So my first question I thought would be worthwhile to ask, what prompted that, or what prompted you to initiate uh, this series? There are large numbers of people around the world every year that die during heat waves. Almost all of those deaths are preventable. There's very low awareness worldwide that heat kills. And in an effort to try and once again bring this in front of the attention of the population health and the medical community, the facts about heat, how it kills people, and how that could be prevented. The second article was led by Professor Ali Jay and focuses on a wide range of actions that can be taken to protect health during heat waves to ensure that we don't continue to have high mortality. For example, here in the Pacific Northwest, at the end of June, there was a heat dome settled over Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. There were more than a 1,000 excess deaths. A 1,000 people died that would not have died otherwise. There was lots of other impacts of that as well. And so our motivation was to bring this information together in a way that would be useful for researchers, for physicians, and for others to help protect health as we see these very high temperatures. Thank you. These first two articles are preceded by an editorial, I'm sure you're well aware, and in it, uh, the comment is, was made that in high-income countries, heat is one of the largest weather-related causes of death. And relative to bring this to the attention of uh, the medical or healthcare community, there are numerous surveys, I'm sure you're uh, well aware, well studied on these, that show only a small fraction or percent of medical schools, for example, include climate crisis health effects in their uh, curriculum. So obviously, uh, this I think this work is personally, I think I think many people would agree, sorely needed. So let's let's go to this, or let's unpack the problem here. And first, let me just ask a preliminary question, such that people understand and can appreciate this. Uh, you do note or spend some time in your article, uh, introductory, discussing the f- uh, physiological responses to heat stress. So you could just provide the listener an overview of what those are? When we think about heat, the concern is primarily with our core. Anybody who's done, for example, Pilates exercises understands your core. And the cells and the organs in our core operate within a pretty narrow range of temperatures. And our bodies have a wide range of mechanisms to try and keep that core body temperature to protect our heart, our lungs, our liver, our kidneys within this fairly narrow range. And so, yes, there's a range of mechanisms. We're all, for example, familiar with sweating when it gets to be too hot. And our body really works to try and keep within that core temperature. 
Okay, thank you. You go on to discuss, and let's work through these. There are any number of threats other than just temperature uh, increase uh, that you work through and explain um, by category, as you could guess, certain occupations obviously are more uh, at risk. Uh, there are threats that present themselves from the quote-unquote built environment, uh, etc. Let's enumerate those, or if you could work through or identify a few of those, just so we could see how really pervasive and almost inescapable uh, warming is. In addition to external temperature, our bodies obviously generate its own temperature. Our body works to make sure our temperature is within a particular range. And when people work outdoors, when people undertake significant exercise, then your core body temperature rises because of the work that your body is doing. And when you look at people who are at higher risk during a heat wave, it includes not just people such as adults over the age of 65, children, people with underlying chronic medical conditions, people who take certain drugs, but also people in outdoor occupations. For example, during that heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, that was at the height of the cherry season here. And we, the state of Washington, is one of three states in the United States that has regulations for outdoor workers and temperature and what has to be done to protect outdoor workers in high temperatures. So there's lots of work that had to be done to protect those cherry pickers to get that harvest in before the cherries all dehydrated on the trees. And similarly, in the eastern parts of the state, where there's a lot of agricultural workers, efforts had to be taken to protect them. But you also think about all the people who work on our roads, for example, people who repair roofs, construction workers. There's lots of jobs where people spend much of their day outside and finding ways to ensure that they have cooling spaces that they can go to, that they drink adequate water, that they understand the symptoms of starting to get into trouble with the heat so that they can get medical care when they need it. All of those actions are important to protect our outdoor workers. This applies equally to sports people. Right. I should say, as an aside, I lived in Arizona for many years and actually did have a summer job roofing houses in college, so I can appreciate uh, this issue or problem, certainly from that experience. There's also, um, because we're increasingly urbanized, there's mention or discussion of the urban heat island effect. I'm not aware, if, um, I'm not sure if everyone's aware of that. Um, it's somewhat intuitive, but if you could explain. Our cities are made of asphalt, concrete, other kinds of materials that absorb heat during the day and release it then at night. This creates a hotter environment in the city than it would be if we lived in the countryside. On top of that, when people have air conditioning, those units dump excess heat out into the environment. So this is a combination of issues like air conditioning, but just the basic materials and the density of those materials in cities means that cities are often several degrees hotter than the, than the surrounding countryside, and that's called the urban heat island. Right. In fact, there were studies out recently or earlier this year, rather, 
that looked at some urban um, uh, urban settings, and Baltimore particularly had a substantial difference in urban Baltimore compared to surrounding Maryland, uh, and it could be quite quite substantial, five to ten or more degrees uh, difference. And of course, we're we're a society that uh, our country that is increasingly urbanizing, so adds further to the problem. Let me ask, um, and, and I should say relative to the outdoor workers, I, I, you know, one of the, and you mentioned kidneys, of course, one of the problems is chronic dehydration of outdoor workers, uh, and that res- can result in uh, eventually um, kidney failure, kidney problems. Uh, so it, it can be quite serious um, over time, particularly. Um, let, me, let me go to, um, you mentioned the second article in the series, uh, mm-hmm. And and I, as I read the um, again the fine print, these were moreover researchers in Australia, I believe. And you mentioned the lead author Ali J. And they and I, I'll just read the title: uh, Reducing the Health Effects of Hot Weather and Heat Extremes from Personal Cooling Strategies to Green a City. So uh, this is more an applied piece. It discusses heat action plans or cooling strategies. So let's work through. A, a few of these, um, for example, uh, the one I was particularly noted in, obviously for healthcare purposes, is they do discuss or identify aged care or senior living facilities and relative to what they can do. Um, and then there's some generic responses to this, certainly, of course, advanced uh, notice or warning relative to uh, heat domes or uh, um, heat extremes. But uh, let's start with um, what steps or measures that they spell out relative to addressing a senior care improving uh, their safety. Well, thank you. And I will point out to your listeners that if you go to the Lancet website for the heat and health series, there's several really well done infographics on a wide range of measures that can be taken to help protect people during hot weather. When we think about elderly care facilities, many of the people are at much higher risk during high temperatures because they've got underlying health conditions. Further, a natural part of the aging process is people become less well able to tell they're getting into trouble with the heat. Many of the older adults may have circulation problems and that becomes even more challenging for them to determine they're getting into trouble with the heat. So particularly vulnerable population, low awareness that heat is a killer, And in terms of what you can do with the elderly care facilities, start with the basics of making sure that everyone in that facility, all of the people who work in the facility, are well aware of the problems of high ambient temperature and know what they can do to help protect the people who live there. Do you have an area where they can go in that facility that's a lot cooler, where they can cool their core body temperature down? make sure they drink sufficient fluids. There's simple things like taking wet towels and putting them around your neck to help cool that area of the body that helps cool down the core body temperature. So there's quite a wide range of actions that can be taken to protect people, but you have to know about it to be able to take those actions. Right. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Since you mentioned air conditioning earlier, I did want to pick up on this. So we do know worldwide the sale or use of, of air conditioners, uh, the units are is growing tremendously. Um, but this this is 
this is a plus and minus, certainly. I mean, the plus is obviously specific populations, of course, can benefit. But of course, this just increases energy consumption, of course, uh, greenhouse gas emissions generally. So it is it is problematic as as much as it is uh, a solution to the problem. I'm, I'm assuming you would agree. There's a very interesting paper, again, from Professor Ollie Jay's group at the University of Sydney. I believe the first author's last name is Hospers. The paper is an analysis of where in the United States during very high temperatures people would need to have air conditioning. And the answer was in most places in the U.S., except for the desert southwest, that it's possible to stay cool during hot weather by doing simple things. I mentioned the towel around the neck when temperatures are very high, sitting in front of a fan, for example, and putting some water on your skin so that the water evaporates. And that really does cool people down. Same idea as cities like Phoenix have misters out on the sidewalk. Right, right. And you know how that cools you down. Yes. So there's, there's ways people can cool down during heat waves without having to have air conditioning. And there is an increase worldwide in air conditioning use with more people going to renewables. Those air conditioners don't necessarily generate greenhouse gases. They do contribute to the urban heat island. And there's a lot of technology development going on to try and make air conditioners friendlier towards a changing climate so that when we do have to have them, we don't need to worry about their use. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, back to the, um, so staying with uh, the Ali J piece, uh, another subtopic or area they discuss more generally beyond senior living facilities is, of course, um, uh, healthcare more generally. And the intro essay uh, states that, uh, in the introductory states that, or the health editorial intro states that, quote unquote, many healthcare facilities are unprepared, quote unquote, to address extreme heat, particularly amongst vulnerable populations. So this gets at uh, acute settings, uh, large, particularly hospitals, of course, nursing homes as well, certainly. Um, other than interventions, on the, from the policy perspective, and I bring this up because you're well aware the National Academy of Medicine is is engaged in this decarbonizing the healthcare sector. What do you see as possible policy reform options to help healthcare facilities be more prepared to address this issue or problem? I would go more broad at the moment and talk about the importance for essentially every place to have a heat action plan. Heat action plans include at least two big components. One is a heat wave early warning and response mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. But you know what you're going to do when there's a heat wave. Right. And I'll talk about those more in a moment. The second part of the heat action plan is preparing for a hotter future. I live in Seattle. We have a lot of cranes downtown. There's lots of rebuilding. And this is where it's up to the city, but the city has changed regulations over the years in in terms, for example, of earthquake preparedness. And so it's possible to set up regulations that all buildings have white roofs, that all buildings over a certain size have green roofs, that you can think about your building materials. You can think about how to construct buildings for a much hotter future. And that's long-term planning. 
Mm-hmm. The heat wave early warning and response systems really are an all of society issue that when you think about who should be at the table, it's not just the health department, the meteorological department, fire, emergency vehicles, EMT, but you also start thinking about who in the city reaches out to the elderly care facilities, who interfaces with the people who live in the red line and marginalized areas of the city that often have fewer trees and therefore tend to be hotter than the rest of the city. How do you start reaching out to all these different groups in society to make sure that as you design the system, you have everybody at the table so that you can have the discussions within your city of how your services are organized, how best to manage those services when you've got a heat event and make sure that you can protect people. And that then, of course, means you have your healthcare facilities as part of that. And so the healthcare facilities need to be at the table when heat wave early warning systems are designed. And equally, they need to think about how they're going to handle the number of patients coming in when there is a heat wave. Mm -hmm. There was a, a webinar towards the end of August in which there was a discussion amongst five emergency department personnel here in Seattle about their experiences during that heat dome. Uh, One of the emergency departments said, as is typical with these, this was just a real typical event in terms of response in a city that wasn't particularly prepared, is mortality starts within 24 hours. So the first 24 hours, you think we're, we're not doing too bad. Temperatures are really high, but we're doing okay. And then after a day, it really starts to hit. One of the emergency departments was taking a call every nine minutes for somebody who was in trouble with the heat. One of the emergency departments said that they were just being as creative as they could, trying to find ways to really cool down people's body temperatures when they were so hot. And they put some people into body bags and put ice into the body bags to help cool people down. One of the emergency departments came close to running out of ice for cooling down people. Another reported that an EMT burnt his knees while he was kneeling on the sidewalk trying to help somebody who'd succumbed to the heat. And so there is planning in our health departments within our healthcare facilities for different kinds of events. And we need the planning for heat waves. We have far too many deaths in these heat waves, and they are the first line of action as people start seeing what heat can do to us. And as people start coming into healthcare, they come into the emergency department. And so having that organization, having set up in advance how these events are going to be managed so that you can protect people as much as possible. Thank you for that. I know your colleague is an ED physician, Jeremy Hess. Um, that's true. And I'm assuming when you mentioned that, that's who I thought of when you mentioned the webinar. I'm assuming he was a participant. So that makes me want to circle back to uh, the, the healthcare infrastructure, both education, medical schools, and frontline healthcare delivery, ED departments, of course, Um ambulances, EMTs, et cetera. So, and, and I want to circle back because I noted that a small percentage 
of uh, medical schools teach this. In fact, I've seen uh, percents as low as 15%. So maybe I'll ask, relative to University of Washington, uh, what learning or what effort is being made that others should appreciate uh, who realize they need to do a better job? So what, what, can, we say, what, what can be said about uh, your, your institution's efforts? One of the efforts in the Center for Health and the Global Environment is to set up core competencies for our students to what do they need to understand around climate change and health to ensure that the master's and the Ph.D. students who come through our program focusing on climate change come out with core competencies. And more broadly, you can start thinking about core competencies in medical school, for example, to make sure that people are prepared, not just for heat waves, for vector-borne diseases changing their range, for the kinds of shifts we're expecting that have already started with the health risks of a changing climate. So that education and training component is really critical. And as I mentioned, when I just talked about the heat dome, also thinking about technology changes. And there's a wide possibility of technology changes, not just for heat, for heat, of course. If you have a heat wave, how are you going to cool, cool people down? But you need to think beyond that. There was a heat wave in a northern part of Canada several years ago. And one of the hospitals had to shut down its operating rooms because they couldn't condition the air sufficiently for the operating room. Hmm. What happens to your operations when the temperatures are really high? Right, right. In Portland, the plan was during the heat wave that people could take the city tram to some of the cooling centers, but the city had to shut down the tram parts of the tram system because the temperatures were so high they were worried about the metal rails. Right, yes. And whether they could safely run on those. So again, this is all of society. You have to start thinking much more broadly. And then in the long term, how can we shift to different kinds of materials, different kinds of technologies? Do we need some new technology development? That means we can continue to protect people in hotter temperatures. You know, you mentioned uh, north of you, Canada. I'm sure you're well aware uh, British Columbia just uh, declared its third state of emergency this year because yeah. they got uh, the 500-year, once-in-500-year flood a couple of weeks ago. Um, two days over a month's worth of rain. Uh, some of the photos are truly uh, frightening. So with that, um, I w would like to, um, I do this on occasion, and I feel it may be helpful here. Uh, what what questions did I fail to ask? Um, or what what else would you like uh, to note uh, as, as a closing comment, uh, Professor? I, I think that might be useful. There's very low awareness of the fact that when we look at the mitigation policies and technologies, almost all of them have benefits for our health. And if you add up the avoided hospitalizations from reducing exposure to outdoor air pollution, for example, from changing diets so that people only eat as much red meat as their doctor recommends, mm -hmm. and you add up all of those benefits, there are more Sometimes the same, but often they're more than the cost of mitigation. So mitigation should be for our health. We'll benefit the planet 
but will benefit our health in the short term. We'll have lower healthcare costs, we'll have healthier people, we'll have healthier lives, and we'll benefit the planet by mitigating. I, I, I genuinely, I'm glad you noted that. I genuinely appreciate that. Just as an aside related, there is testimony before Congress. I mentioned this to someone recently uh, last month in which uh, the comment was made, when you when you factor in the uh, unaccounted for costs of public health, population health, from the emissions of uh, carbon from coal-fired combustion, the, the testimony or the individual drew the conclusion that even if the resource of coal was free, the public health costs were so much, it still was unaffordable. I mean, per, to, to further your point, uh, and of course, we're an economy of unpaid costs, frequently public health costs. Um, and so I appreciate that point that mitigation actually uh, is the actually the most um, efficient way to go forward. So with that, uh, uh, Professor Ebi, genuinely appreciate this overview. And maybe just quickly, I'll ask: Where's the series going? What do you expect? What can readers expect uh, in subsequent work relative to, um, again, uh, this series? Uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. In terms of the series, the series itself is done. Where I would be looking in the future is there's a lot of work coming out on the impacts of heat on maternal health. And so I would focus future podcasts on the impacts of heat on maternal health and what we can do to help protect pregnant women and babies. Good point. I will note that. So with that, again, I appreciate your time, Professor. Thank you, and good luck with your work. Thanks so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.